0: This takes us into the heart of the section in Matthew's Gospel, usually given the title The Gospel of the Kingdom. It runs from chapter 3 through to the end of chapter 7, and the Sermon on the Mount is obviously and rightly center stage. This is an incredibly important chapter, and it's a long chapter, so it may take us a few more minutes than normal to make our way through it. Now, if you remember, at the end of chapter 4, Matthew tells us that Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He said that in Matthew 4.23. So it would seem that this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is presented as a sort of representative sample. Jesus probably preached this sermon dozens or even hundreds of times, likely with slight variations each time, depending on who he was talking to. And that likely accounts for some of the slight differences in terms of how the sermon is recorded and presented in the Gospel of Luke. In terms of structure, there are three parts to the Sermon on the Mount as presented here in Matthew. Verses 1 to 16 provide the introduction in which the norms and witness of the kingdom of heaven are discussed. Then from 517 to 712, we have the main body of the sermon, and then we get the conclusion and invitation in 713 to 27. So hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now let's just pause here to consider the audience for this remarkable sermon. Verse 1 tells us that his disciples came to him. So obviously he's teaching his disciples, but Matthew seven twenty eight at the conclusion of the sermon says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So it's probably best to think of Jesus teaching his close disciples while at the same time being fully aware that a much larger group was listening in. Verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The Sherman on the Mount begins with a section we've come to know as the Beatitudes. In this section, a number of people are referred to as blessed. So obviously we want to know exactly what that word means. D.A. Carson says usefully here, To be blessed means fundamentally to be approved or to find approval, closed quote. So this is the approved path. This is the blessed path. This is where God's people want to be found walking. Therefore, scholars will sometimes refer to the Beatitudes as describing the norms of the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes describe behaviors and attitudes that are associated with the kingdom of heaven and that are appropriate for the people of God. Now, to be clear, the Beatitudes don't tell us how to get saved. In fact, we aren't told how to enter the kingdom of heaven until the end of the sermon. Rather, the Beatitudes tell us how saved people, how kingdom people ought to live immediately and progressively as they grow in the image and likeness of Christ. The first Beatitude refers to the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This saying of Jesus sounds an awful lot like Isaiah 66 six two, which says, But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. Again, since the word blessed means the one approved by God, we are learning here that God approves of the person who is poor in spirit. We see that in both the Old and New Testaments. But what does that mean? R.T. France says that the phrase poor in spirit refer to those who humbly trust God, even though their loyalty results in oppression and material disadvantage in contrast with the wicked who arrogantly set themselves up against God and persecute his people. The emphasis thus is on piety and suffering Close quote I found that very helpful. the phrase "For theirs is the kingdom of heaven is repeated in verse 10 creating an inclusio or a set of brackets giving us the theme for the Beatitudes as a whole. This is about what is approved in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, why would God approve of people who mourn? Over what are they mourning? Here it is helpful to remember the story in Ezekiel 9. Prior to a great outpouring of wrath upon Jerusalem, God called an angel to him, And said, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said, in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary, closed quote. That's Ezekiel 9, 3 to 6. In this story, God approved and marked as approved the people who had mourned, sighed, and groaned over sin. Kingdom people, by and large, are not happy with the way that this world is. They are disturbed by what they see, and what makes everyone else laugh makes them want to cry. That is the normal experience of the people of God in this fallen world. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is about not forcing your way forward. It's about trusting God to promote you if that is his desire. So we think of Abraham and Lot in Genesis 13. We think of Moses with respect to the challenge of Miriam and Aaron in Numbers 12. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Now, while the word righteousness in the New Testament can refer to the righteousness we receive through faith in Christ, here it refers to a pattern of life in conformity with God's will. A kingdom person wants his or her life to line up perfectly with God's word and will. This is the normal desire of every truly saved person. Immediately, and progressively under the influence of the holy spirit verse seven blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy mercy refers to a loving response toward the misery and helplessness of another person kingdom people are compassionate and responsive toward the vulnerable again that impulse is immediately implanted when we become a christian receive the holy spirit And it grows and strengthens over the course of the Christian life. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The Sermon on the Mount places great stress on internal righteousness as opposed to the external formalism of the Pharisees. It is the internal purity and righteousness of the kingdom citizen that is approved by God and that will increasingly characterize his people. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. D.A. Carson says helpfully here, the Christian's role as peacemaker extends not only to spreading the gospel, but to lessening tensions, seeking solutions, ensuring that communication is understood, closed quote. That's normal behavior, or at least that's supposed to be normal behavior for the people of God. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, notice the repeated phrase, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a bracket. That's a very Jewish way of saying that all these things are a set. They all have to do with what is normal or appropriate and approved in the kingdom of heaven. This last beatitude serves as a test for all the others. If you live... In the kingdom of heaven, if you walk the kingdom way, then you will be persecuted by the kingdom of this world. Indeed, as the Apostle Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, 2 Timothy 3.12. Verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you So here Jesus says not only is this normal and expected and approved, but it places you in very distinguished company For likewise, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 13 You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is important to note the connection with what precedes. Jesus is saying that our living out these distinctive kingdom norms is itself a critical component of our witness to the world. Salt refers to our distinctiveness and to our preservative effect upon a culture that apart from God inclines always toward corruption and declension. To be effective, then, the followers of Jesus must not deteriorate. They must not lose their power and their distinctive character. Light refers specifically to our good deeds, as per verse 16. These deeds show or manifest our distinctive character and allegiance and commend the kingdom of heaven to other people. Now, as I mentioned... The main body of the Sermon on the Mount runs from 517 to 712. If the introduction had to do with the norms and witness of the kingdom, here the emphasis is on the righteousness of the kingdom. Jesus talks about how the righteousness of the kingdom relates to the Old Testament, how it is superior to the righteousness of the Pharisees, how it is internal in nature, how it is before the Lord and not before men, how it is humble and trusting, and how it may... Usefully be summarized. In doing all of this, Jesus shows how he fulfills the law and interprets it and arbitrates it as the rightful king of the kingdom. We'll begin reading at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Let's just pause and be very clear here Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. The New Testament doesn't destroy or contradict the Old Testament. That just isn't how your Bible is put together. Think of it this way. The Old Testament was like a dark cave filled with breathtaking beauty and treasure that was only dimly seen and partially understood because of the fallenness and wickedness of men. But thanks be to God, Jesus is the light. In him, we see all clearly, but it's the same cave. It's the same room. It's the same faith. Jesus didn't come to dig a new cave. He came to turn the lights on so that we could see who God has always been and how God has long been working to save and redeem a people for himself. That's why we see Jesus providing correction and authoritative interpretation of the Old Testament in this Sermon on the Mount. He is here to tell us how to read the law, and the prophets. He's not telling us to unhitch from them or to throw them away. He is saying that he is the ultimate author and interpreter of everything that God has to say. He is, as the gospel of John says, the word made flesh. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So again, to be clear, Jesus affirmed the whole Bible. The whole Old Testament is inspired and profitable and it points to him and he now takes the baton as it were and continues to move forward with it. He looks back and clarifies and he looks forward and expands and applies. That's how your Bible is put together, with a teaching and clarifying Christ in the very middle. Thanks be to God. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, we sometimes hear this as if Jesus is saying that we must strive to be like the Pharisees, only better. That we have to, in essence, follow them and go further than them. But that's not at all what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that the scribes and Pharisees have gotten off track. Their righteousness doesn't work, therefore do not be like them. Jesus is rejecting the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It is formal, ritualistic, and external. It is designed to impress men and not God. The righteousness of the kingdom is infinitely better verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar It is not about external performance or perfunctory obedience. It is about wholehearted obedience. It isn't enough, simply, not to kill people. As kingdom citizens, we must learn to love people from the heart. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not done here. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, it's not enough simply to not have sex with your neighbor's wife. That's a great start. But the kingdom way is far deeper than that. The kingdom way is for us to love our wives and to be glad in them, body, mind, and soul. Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, Jesus is obviously speaking figuratively here, which of course all good teachers do. He is saying that we must take extreme measures to battle against the sin in our hearts, or it will work its way out through our bodies. We have to fight the battle in the heart and in the mind, lest the whole person become infected and dragged down into hell. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, That everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, Jesus is positioning himself as the authoritative interpreter of the Old Testament, specifically here of Deuteronomy 24. In that passage, Moses did permit the giving of divorce certificates. But Jesus is clarifying, this was not done to make divorce easier. It was done to protect women. Moses didn't mean to devalue marriage. He meant to severely regulate divorce and to protect vulnerable women. If a woman was cast out by her husband and not given a certificate of divorce, she would have been unable to get remarried and would have been financially destitute as a result. That's what Deuteronomy 24 was about, Jesus says. And we're very glad for that clarification. Verse 33, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Again, remember that the righteousness of the kingdom is being defined over and against the rejected righteousness of the Pharisees. They had very complicated oath formulas that allowed them basically to lie, particularly in their business interactions. Here, Jesus is saying that kingdom people will simply tell the truth. Their yes will be yes, and their no will be no. Now, he does not outright forbid taking oaths here. Jesus himself spoke under oath at his trial. And the apostle Paul spoke under oath. So we understand this simply to be another stark contrast. Jesus is saying, kingdom people don't use complicated oath formulas in order to lie. We just tell the truth. Verse 38, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, the eye for an eye principle in the Old Testament was actually meant to limit blood feuds between families and to set a kind of limit, a kind of relationship with respect to judicial punishments between the crime committed and the punishment that was given out. Back in those days, vigilante justice could certainly get out of hand. Families going back and forth. You did this to my brother, so I'm going to do this to your brother. Things escalate quickly. And also, there was a concern to make sure that when justice was being meted out by the magistrate, that there was a logical relationship, a reasonable relationship, between the punishment given and the crime committed. We're not going to chop people's heads off for stealing loaves of bread. So that was the original intention. However, it had become in Judaism a warrant for revenge-seeking. So Jesus points away from that wrong application toward a more appropriate kingdom perspective. Jesus is saying that kingdom people don't take revenge. They don't try and even the score. They aren't obsessed with their personal rights. They know who they are, and they know where they're going, so they keep their eye on the ball. Now, notice that the issue here is personal vendetta. Jesus is not saying that the king or the crown or the judicial system can't punish evildoers. He's not talking about that. If, if you want content on that, go and read Romans 13:1 1-7. Here, Jesus is saying that kingdom people do not seek revenge. They do not use violence to pursue justice. Or to protect their dignity or property. Verse 43 You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is probably the most revolutionary thing ever spoken by a human being on planet Earth. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Who talks like that? Who ever said anything like that before? And the answer is that nobody ever said anything like that before Jesus. This righteousness of the kingdom is obviously otherworldly. It comes from heaven, and we will need help from heaven to even begin living out this radical, remarkable, and redemptive way. But that's what the gospel is all about. The gospel is about how Jesus saves us, changes us, and helps us to become the people we were originally created and intended to be. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the In of the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have first-hand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at IntoTheWord.ca.